And a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up in today's broadcast, we'll be talking to Father Mike Deep OP as he talks to us about the church and the UN. But before that, we bring you some of the stories that have made headlines in Africa today. So do stay tuned. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, for a change. And in your headlines this Tuesday evening, Christians with hardened hearts are like orphans, says Pope Francis. Famine threatens parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And death penalty is not the solution to drug trafficking. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. We begin with church news. Reflecting on the day's reading at the morning mass at Casa Santa Marta, Pope Francis said Christians who harden their hearts and refuse to be drawn towards Christ are like orphans without a father. Philippa Hitchin has more. Pope Francis began his sermon by recalling the question that the sceptical Jews kept asking Jesus every time he performed a miracle, preached in the temple or pointed the way to the Father. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That question, which the Pope said the scribes and Pharisees repeat in many different ways, springs from a heart that is closed and blind to the faith. As Jesus explains in today's Gospel reading, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Being part of God's flock, he said, is a grace which requires an open heart. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says in that reading. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. Have these sheep studied how to follow Jesus and then believe, the Pope asked? No, he said, citing the words from St. John's Gospel. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. It is the Father who gives the sheep to the shepherd. It is the Father who draws our hearts to Jesus. The hardness of the scribes and Pharisees' hearts, he said, is a drama which continues all the way to Calvary. They see the works that Jesus performed, but they refuse to believe he is the Messiah. Even after the resurrection, the Pope recalled, this drama continues as the soldiers guarding the tomb are told to say they'd fallen asleep in order to give credit to the story that the disciples had stolen the body of Christ. Not even the witness of those who saw the risen Christ was able to reach those who refused to believe. And this has its consequences, the Pope said, because they are orphans who have denied the Father. These doctors of the law, he went on, had closed hearts. They thought they were their own masters. But in fact, they were orphans because they had no relationship with the Father. 
They talked about their fathers, Abraham, and the patriarchs, but these were distant figures, and in their hearts they were orphans because they would not let themselves be drawn to the Father. On the contrary, the Pope said, reflecting on the first reading for the day, the news that reached Jerusalem of the many pagans who heard the disciples preaching in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and turned to the faith, shows what it means to have a heart open to God. Like Barnabas, he said, who is sent to Antioch to confirm these rumors and is not scandalized by the conversion of the pagans, but accepts this novelty and lets himself be drawn by the Father to Jesus. Pope Francis concludes by saying Jesus invites us to be his disciples, but to be so we must let ourselves be drawn by the Father towards him. The humble prayer we can say is, Father, lead me to Jesus, help me to know Jesus, and the Father will send the Spirit to open our hearts and lead us to him. A Christian who doesn't allow himself to be led by the Father is an orphan, but we have a Father who can lead us to Jesus. I'm Philippa Hitchin. Malawi has started moving 10,000 Mozambican asylum seekers back from the border to the newly reopened Luwani camp in southern eastern Malawi. Increased tensions late last year between the ruling party Frelimo and opposition party Renamo have pushed nearly 12,000 civilians from Mozambique's Zambezia province to Malawi. Before its official closure in 2007, the Luwani camp hosted more than 300,000 Mozambican refugees who had fled civil war between 1977 and 1992. Many parts of Asia, Africa and the Americas are scorching in the heat because of a cyclical phenomenon known as El Nino. The unusually warm waters that come up to the surface in the Pacific Ocean every three to six years cause extreme weather conditions. The resulting drought is especially hard on the poorest people of sub-Saharan Africa. Zlatika Hawk reports. Somaliland is one of the poorest African regions. Its rural population is struggling to make a living in the best of times, but drought makes it impossible. I am 80. In the 80 years of my life, I've never seen such severe drought. It has killed so many animals and caused so much famine. Our lives are in danger. The situation is similar in the neighboring Puntland region and parts of Ethiopia. The United Nations last month called for urgent aid to save 1.7 million people in the affected parts of Somalia. Communities are losing their means for survival and we need to stop this loss of lives and forced displacement as people have no other option than to move in search of food, water and income. But when there is no food and water for miles and miles around, moving may be futile. Some Ethiopian farmers have crossed the border to try to escape famine. The drought has been raging for three years in Ethiopia. We were told that there were pastures on the other side of the border, but when we got here, we found nothing. Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country, is in the grip of its worst drought in decades. The government is appealing for aid to help 10 million affected people. The food shortage is also grave in Malawi, which has not yet recovered from last year's record flooding. Before the floods, my child was doing well. But after we lost our crops, my child got sick and became malnourished. That is what made me come to this hospital for treatment and food. Malawi's president has declared a state of national disaster, but the food crisis in parts of Africa could get worse yet. The peak of the crisis is still to come. 
so I think we, we, we will see the situation getting worse before it will get better. And we talk about maybe a small improvement around mid-2016 or shortly after this. Experts say people in the affected areas depend on aid to survive and are calling for an urgent step-up of humanitarian efforts. Slaritsa Hoke, Washington. As many as 400 refugees and migrants have drowned off the Egyptian coast when the boat capsized. Most of those who are believed to have died were Somali refugees seeking asylum. Czech Perak has more. Somalia's ambassador to Egypt has confirmed the reported deaths after the families of the victims shared information on social media. A handful of survivors were taken to a Greek island. It's believed over 6,000 people boarded smugglers' boats in Libya last week as the volume of people taking the route between the North African coastline and Italy is increasing once again. The International Organization for Migration estimates up to 100,000 people may attempt the journey this year which is far more treacherous than the trip across the Aegean Sea from Turkey to Greece, which has effectively been closed following a deal between the EU and Turkey. I'm Jack Parrick in Brussels. And finally, the death penalty has proven to be ineffective overall at reducing illegal drug trafficking. That's according to Kesia Malinowska, director of the Global Drug Policy Program for Open Society Foundations. Ms. Malinowska was a panelist on Monday at a meeting leading up to the General Assembly's special session on the world drug problem, otherwise known as UN Gas. She spoke to Jenny Kengelosi about global trends in drug policy. While overall member states are reducing the use of death penalty, as they should, in case of drug laws, that actually the trend is actually opposite. Increasing number of states are using death penalty, and right now we have 33 countries that actually have that in their laws. And that number has increased since 1979, at which point we had just 10 states. So while there is an overall success for abolition of death penalty, it doesn't seem to apply to drug laws. Why do you think these nations think that they deserve such a severe penalty? Well, I mean, that, that's a question that all of us are struggling with. And I think that the discussion around this is actually a crucial one, because when you have a conversation with legislators or leaders, the definition of what requires a death penalty is actually very different. So in some instances, people will tell you that 100 kilos of heroin would require a death penalty. But when you listen to the Indonesian president who articulate, who brought back death penalty and who says that the overdose probably in Indonesia is so severe that, that that in itself inspired him to to justify death penalty. It's actually quite concerning because then no amount is small enough because overdose, overdose deaths happen clearly not with a kilo of heroin but a lot less. What do you think needs to happen in drug policy? What's the right direction to go here? Well, I think what's really important to keep in mind, and, and I, th I say this very seriously, that sort of making pariahs of the states that are implementing that, that penalty is probably not the right way to go, partially because they are a part of a much larger machinery. And if we are comfortable with this very large, very punitive machinery across the world, 
then there will be an outlier that outliers that will use the most severe form of it. So I, I was watching with interest the upset that uh, Brazilians were expressing at execution of their national in Indonesia, and I uh, absolutely sympathize with that outrage. At the same time, none of the Brazilian leaders that expressed that outrage looked at their own drug laws and did not look at how they themselves contribute to, to this very punitive regime. And I think that that is exactly what has to happen. It has to happen on two fronts. We need to single out countries that are executing people, but at the same time, we have to look at national drug laws and, and participation of every single country in that machinery, which is so incredibly unfair and punitive. Is there a nation that you think has implemented a policy that really has worked? Well, there are a number of countries. There isn't, you know, one overall happy drug policy, but there are segments of it. So, for example, Switzerland has implemented very good public health set of interventions. Portugal has done a great job at decriminalizing. Bolivia has allowed a number of coca growers to legally produce coca for illicit uh, purposes. So there are many, many examples uh, of sort of particular interventions, but they all in some ways sit inside of a very punitive drug regime. And I think it is that drug regime that needs to be tackled. And and uh, our hope was that this is what ANGAS, this ANGAS is going to do. It seems unlikely now, but you know, we, we may be inched forward a couple of millimeters. Hopefully in, 19, in 2019 we'll do so even more. Do you see it heading toward a policy of complete legalization of drugs? No. I mean, I, I think that's inevitable probably in a century. Partially because there should be a recognition that drugs are actually complicated and potentially cause a lot of damage to societies and individuals and that it's only the state that should have the right to regulate. Right now it's the illicit industry that's regulating drugs and that's not the situation we want to continue to be in. And those were some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and in the church today. You're still listening to The Catholic View, and I'm Shayla Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up next, we take a look at the church and the UN. Father Mike Deeb, OP, is the permanent delegate of the Dominican Order to the United Nations and the Order's general promoter of justice and peace. Born in Valcom in the Free State Province of South Africa back in 1953, he holds a master's degree in theology, having also studied social sciences. For a major part of his life, he has worked with secondary and university student movements, particularly with those of Catholic students and with youth in general. He played a leadership and chaplaincy role, beginning with the White National Catholic Federation of Students and the Black Catholic Student Association, which merged in 1993 to form the Association of Catholic Tertiary Students. He was also a founding member of the Young Christian Students in South Africa and has been involved in many other Catholic structures of youth, laity and justice and peace. In addition, he has been active in several ecumenical organizations, notably the Ecumenical Action Movement and the Theology Exchange Program in Cape Town, the Standing for the Truth Campaign in Peter Marysburg and the Institute for Contextual Theology in Johannesburg. Through all these movements, he was actively involved in the events following June 1976, 
in the build-up to the formation of the United Democratic Front in 1983 and in the mobilization during the states of emergency in the late 80s, spending 50 days in detention in 1985. In January 2014, he was appointed by the Master of the Order to be the permanent delegate of the Dominican Order to the United Nations. And in October 2014, he was also appointed to be the Order's General Promoter for Justice and Peace. I spoke to Father Mike Christopher Deeb about his work at the United Nations. Are there any other religious uh, congregations that are doing the same job as you at the UN? Yes, there are many organizations and even many Catholic organizations that are that are registered and are accepted as as um, NGOs in the UN context. Because um, maybe you need to understand that in the UN there are two categories: you have the states or governments, and then you have the non-governmental organizations. And all of us are lumped into that box regardless of what sort of organization you are. Amongst those, uh, so we all have consultative status because only the governments are members and therefore have a right to vote. All the rest of us are observers or guests even of those states and have been able to be there. Amongst us, you have two different kinds of consultative status. You have those of general consultative status, which are normally the very big ones we have a presence almost everywhere, like Caritas Internationales, like Amnesty International, etc. And the rest of us have what's called special consultative status. So this is a majority. And, but we still, uh, no, there's not a very big difference in what we're able to do. In fact, hardly anyone, no visible difference at all. So as uh, an NGO, we are allowed to get a badge, we're allowed to uh, get access to all the, the meetings that are public, and we're allowed to make interventions and engage with uh, governments, and etc. So in this context, the, many Catholics have, have decided to apply for this and received it over the last 20 years. Um, so for example, in, in Geneva, where I do most of my work, uh, there's probably around uh, 20 or so Catholic organizations, or maybe even more. And in New York, there are even more. There are about 40 or, or more Catholic organizations operating. And, and uh, amongst those, you've got the, the religious, who form the biggest group of religious congregations, and then a number of other uh, lay Catholic groups or or um, those who have a mixture of all, of all statuses within them. So there are many Catholics involved in this. So we just one amongst many, and there are Catholic forums where we come together and we share things at times, and we, we try and collaborate on common issues where we work on the same issue or share the same perspective of certain things. And, um, and through that, we try to have an impact because no one alone can really have any impact here. You have to collaborate with others. So we so we try and engage with all the other Catholics and uh, and even people uh, who are not necessarily Catholic who share the same concerns as us, and there are a lot of them. We try and collaborate with them on common issues as well. 
Now, you, you of course, are the UN Permanent Observer representing the Dominican Order. And just like you mentioned, there are a couple of many other Catholic organizations that do uh, form part of the UN. But what's your relationship with these other Catholic members and uh, how do you interact with them? Um, it depends on what if they are covering common issues. Um, there are these general forums where we all come together and uh, just uh, talk in general about things. But then uh, within those, where we also set up particular working groups where we come together. So, for example, in Geneva, we have the right, a right to development working group that we are part of. There's also another working group on education. There's another group on the family, um, etc. So we come together with others that want to work on that issue. And uh, in that case, we, we share what we are doing or, and we, we reflect together on how we can uh, have an impact in those areas. What are the issues? How to engage with other groups? Can we organize something together? Should we organize a common time to invite certain uh, state missions or delegations to come and meet us to discuss a particular issue we want to uh, advocate for? And... Um, yeah, so in that way, we collaborate in doing the advocacy work. And sometimes we always have a few selected ones. We organize side events together. Often we we um, we write statements and which we present in the sessions, and which others co-sign. So we, when normally when someone produces a statement, if you do it long enough in advance, you you send it around and ask is is anyone else prepared to or interested in co-signing the statement. So, for example, when we Dominicans began, um, most of our time was spent co-signing statements before we got to know uh, how things are working and whether we can, uh, and to what extent we can initiate things ourselves. So we, we co-signed many statements, mostly from other Catholic NGOs and and in that way, we, we express our common perspective on things and, uh, and we are working together. And then what's the relationship with regards to the Vatican? Does the Vatican ever interfere? Well, we have a very close relationship with the Vatican. They are normally part of many of the things we do. Um, and they, we ask them Normally, if we organize a side event, we ask the Vatican often to be present, to make a statement uh, around the issue that we're trying to deal with in the side event. But other than that, uh, there's always... Uh, we meet with them regularly, informally, sharing things, and they invite us to many of their own events and issues. And invite us to collaborate with them. Certainly, whenever they organise side events, things like that, we we often are present to support them, etc. And they do the same for us. So there's a lot of good uh, collaboration normally with the Holy See's um, delegation. Now, taking a look at the political impact of your work, uh, seeing that uh, you know you you work of uh, lobbying for human rights at such an international level, do you think that any of the governments ever listened to you? Depends 
on who you are and what you're saying and how well you are known. Um, what is clear is that many many governments do appreciate NGOs a great deal, and they they say say things like, you know, we need you people to highlight for us what's really going on on the ground because we don't always have that information. So there are quite a lot of NGOs of uh, governments that are actively advocating for civil society groups like ourselves to be given a lot of space there. On the other hand, there are other governments who don't like the presence of civil society at all. It makes them too uncomfortable, and they're always trying to reduce the space given to civil society groups. So, uh, and normally it's because they don't want their own human rights abuses or violations to be highlighted too much. So you find quite a division amongst the states around the attitude towards uh, NGOs. So in that context, we have to identify who are the, the states that would be useful to work with and uh, who would be open to working with us. And we try and uh, engage them as far as possible in a number of things we are doing. So, for example, if we organize a side event, we could ask uh, someone from a particular state to come and be one of the speakers around the issue that we're trying to deal with, feel that they, they are also concerned about that issue. If we, if we organize in whatever event, sometimes we ask a uh, state to co-sponsor it, uh, so, for example, I'm in the process at the moment of trying to engage a whole lot of states to co-sponsor an event we want to have in November around the Dominican Jubilee, um, our 800-year Jubilee. And I'm trying to get a state from every region to come in with us because we're going to focus on Francisco de Vitoria, who is Dominican from the 16th century, who was like, regarded as sort of the founder of, of international law, uh, even that since one of the ancestors of, or the founding ancestors of what has become the UN. So we have to use something like that to interest the others uh, in, in looking at the history of the UN and the future. And we have, and some have already indicated an interest to work, working with us to promote this. So we, so the long and the short of your question is that. Uh, states often do listen to us, and especially if we um, are coming up in a session with a declaration which highlights an issue in, in their country that can be embarrassing for them, then states sometimes are forced to listen to us, even if they don't like us. And so our role in some ways is to keep up the pressure by highlighting what's actually going on on the ground. And uh, some states respond positively and others and uh, but even regardless of how they respond, but, but putting this, the information we have into the public domain, it does put a pressure on the states to respond. And there are other mechanisms within the UN that can take up what we say and, and follow it up. So, for example, in March we made a statement in the, in the Human Rights Council about evictions that were taking place in the Dominican Republic and hundreds of people have been left uh, without homes and uh, living in a very precarious situation. And we said that in a context where the special rapporteur for housing was giving a report, and when she heard that, she said, 
And that was the first part of my interview with Father Mike Deeb OP, the permanent delegate of the Dominican Order to the United Nations and the Order's General Promoter of Justice and Peace. You can hear part two of this interview next week at the same time. You have been listening to your Tuesday's edition of Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Sheila Pirch for Radio Veritas. Thank you so much for listening. Catholic View will be back again tomorrow at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Pirch.